So you have your Bibles. First Samuel will be in chapter four. I've titled this message from Ichabod to Ebenezer uh, just primarily because I like to say those words. Uh, I could have titled this message uh, how to crash and burn in life uh, because we're going to see that. We're going to see how through some spiritual errors, your life can crash and burn. I could have titled it the most common and most dangerous spiritual errors uh, because what we're going to focus on today are things that we commonly struggle with uh, today. Uh, We could have titled this uh, message, Why This God Thing Is Not Working For You. Uh, Because I hear people say from time to time that Christianity just doesn't work for me, Pastor. Uh, Well, we'll we'll show you why in Scripture today. But I could have been more positive in my message title. I could have titled it, How to Recover from Spiritual Failure, because we're going to end with good news today. I could have titled it, How to Find the Joy of the Lord, Uh, Because we're not just going to focus on the sin. We need to see the sin, but we're going to focus on God's forgiveness and joy and restoration. Uh, Or to keep in in the spirit of our series, we're going through a series, 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, that we're calling A Royal Mess, Life Lessons from Flawed Leaders. And we're going to see some leadership principles this morning. We're going to see a a poor leader, a bad leader, and then we're going to see a, a great leader. You'll see the differences. Um, from Ichabod to Ebenezer, and I think those words will mean something significant to you if they don't already when we come to the close of this. Let's, let's look at 1 Samuel 4. Just to catch you up, uh, this is a time when there is no king, there is no judge uh, in the nation of Israel. The highest ranking leader is Eli, the high priest. Uh, Eli has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Those sons are absolutely corrupt. Uh, Eli has tolerated their sin, and God has pronounced judgment on the nation. And then we see that judgment beginning in chapter 4. Verse 1 says, And Samuel's words came to all Israel. Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. And so we've we've seen already that the Philistines are the perennial enemies of the Israelites. So they're always fighting these folks. And it's about to happen again. Verse 2, the Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel. And as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. So they were defeated. The Israelites were defeated. And so they asked the question that you would ask, Why have we been defeated? What are we to do about this? Uh, Look at at verse 3. When the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? So there's the question. Now, if you look at the last part of verse 3, you see their answer, which we're going to spend some time on this morning. Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. Now, the ark was a piece of furniture that they used in the tabernacle and then the temple. And this piece of furniture represented the presence of God. It was, it was gold. It was a chest. And it had um, these uh, golden seraphim, these angels on top of it. Uh, there was a lot of history to this. It was a very valuable thing to them. And as I said, it represented the presence of God. 
There were three things in the chest, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, although this would be an easy one, two, three sermon. Uh, The first thing in the chest were the Ten Commandments, the actual commandments on the stone tablets. The second thing in the chest was a jar of manna. This is the bread that God had sent from heaven uh, when the people were in the wilderness. And then the third thing was Aaron's rod. Aaron previously had been the priest. He was the go-between, uh, between the people and God. And, and this rod, there's a whole story attached to it that you can read in your Bibles. Uh, it confirmed that he was the priest that God had chosen. Now, there are a lot of ways to look at the three things in the chest and see Jesus. And so I'll give you just one of those ways. Uh, this is... Uh, Uh, This is a subject that people have preached on for years, and there are a lot of good ways to see Jesus in the chest, and so this isn't the only one. Uh, But I like to look at those commandments, and I think they represent our failure, because not one of us have kept the Ten Commandments. Not one of us has lived a perfect life, and so we're separated from God. Those commandments represent the standard of God that we all have violated. And then uh, the, the staff, Aaron's staff, standing for our need for a priest. See, a priest in biblical terms is one that stands between people and God to make a connection. Uh, you would go to the priest and the priest would go to God. Well, because we have been separated from God, we need someone to stand in the gap. We need someone to stand between us. And who is that someone? That someone is Jesus, right? And then the manna, the bread, reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the priest, and through his life he, and his death and resurrection, he sustains us with all that we need. Now look at verse 4. We'll continue to read this story. So so the people sent men to Shiloh to bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies who is enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Now, let's read another verse. (laughs) When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, so they bring this ark in. In their minds, they're bringing God in. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a loud shout that the ground shook. Now, why are they shouting? Because they're going to have victory, right? I mean, we're bringing God into the fight. How could we lose? Now, if we just stopped here, how would you predict, if you didn't know, how would you predict the rest of the story? I mean, this is setting up just as a perfect vacation Bible school story. You do it on your own, you fail. You bring God in, you succeed. And I can just see the little flannel graphs and all, and I don't know if they do that anymore. But that's not what happened. Look at verse 6. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry, and, and they asked, what's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord entered the camp, they panicked. And so even the Philistines are scared now. But skip down to verse 10. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. That means they fled the battle. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured. 
And the two sons, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Absolute, utter defeat. Now, we looked at some of the rest of the story uh, last week. News comes to Eli, the high priest, that his sons are dead and that the ark is captured. Uh, he falls over and dies. And then word comes to his uh, granddaughter-in-law, no, his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, who was, who was giving birth to a child. And so she gave birth to this child. And what did she name the child? Ichabod, which meant the glory has departed. Ichabod, meaning that God has left. We learned last week, it really means God has been sent away, driven away. God has left us, left us. Ichabod, Ichabod. That was the banner over the nation. Ichabod, the glory is gone. Well, Israel made some errors here, some terrible errors that ended in this great disaster. Ichabod, the glory has departed. And I want you to see these errors, these sins. I want you to see them, first of all, because they're the most common failures. Secondly, because they're the most consequential errors. They, they make a big difference. If you do what they did, if I do what they did, I'll suffer like they suffered. And then I want you to see these because they're subtle, they're sneaky, and they're deadly. So let's see two or three of the errors that they uh, that they make. Unforced errors. They didn't have to do it this way, but they did. Number one, relying on God as the last resort. Now, the, the backdrop of the story is that the Israelites faced a problem. The Philistines. The Philistines were already there. Always there. They were battling the Philistines. As we go through First and Second Samuel, the Philistines are going to pop up over and over and over. They're always battling the Philistines. So what did the Israelites do? Well, the Israelites rolled up their sleeves or their tunics, I'm not sure, and they began to work on the problem. They organized an army, they collected some weapons, they mobilized their forces, they developed a strategy, and then they engaged in battle, and they were defeated. 4,000 Israelites died. So they failed. Then, when they didn't know anything else to do, when they didn't have any other strategies, when they when they didn't think they had any other hope, then they went to the Lord, right? When, when, when they faced just this hopeless situation, they had tried everything they knew to try. They had used their best weapons, their best soldiers, their best strategy. Then they went to the Lord. Now, I'm not suggesting that they sought the Lord well. We're going to look at that in a moment. But what I'm pointing out is that God was their last Resort, their last resort. Church, God doesn't want to be your last resort. Why doesn't God want to be your last resort? Because your first resort, your first thoughts, your first option says something about your heart. Now, let me share a scenario, and men pay close attention to this because it'll help you out. Let's imagine that a married woman has an accident in her car. And so she is able shortly thereafter to get to her cell phone. And she calls her husband. And when, in, when he answers the phone, he can hear that she is sobbing. She's very upset. And she says... 
I've been in a terrible accident. And then he says, how badly is the car damaged? (laughs) Now listen, ladies, is that the best response? No. Why not? It is important to know how badly the car is damaged. Why is that not the best first response, though? Because it says something about his heart. He finds out there's a wreck. My wife, she'll, she'll be okay. How's the car doing? What's the, ladies, what's the best response? Are you okay? Write that down in your Bibles. Are you okay? Our first response is something about our heart. And consequently, God doesn't want to be our last resort. Do you ever rely on God as the last resort? When people completely exclude God from their marriage until finally their marriage is about to implode and then they pray. Last resort. When a college student abandons their walk with the Lord and ends up in a crisis, maybe it's a crisis with their grades or a possible pregnancy or legal trouble or relationship failure, and then they pray, last resort. Or maybe it's a difficult situation at work or in your relationships or with respect to some temptation or at home or with your mental health, and you just ignore it until life is beginning to come unraveled, and then you pray, last resort. God wants to be your first resort. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't, though, say that there is some nuance to this. There's, there's more to see uh, to this. God doesn't want to be your last resort, but it is true that God waits for you to return. And this is, I, I, I want you to see both. If we just said God doesn't want to be your last resort, we would be ignoring the grace and mercy found in Christ Uh, I think about the story of the prodigal son. When did the prodigal son, you know that story, left his father, he went off and lived in a way that his father would not have approved. He lost all of his money. He was hungry. His life fell apart. When did he turn back as a last resort, right? He did everything he could. And when there was nowhere else to turn, he goes back and the father accepts him. That's one of the main points of the story. So which is it? God wants to be the last resort or he doesn't want to be the last resort? Well, essentially, here's this. God will not be manipulated. Don't think you can just push God off to the end and you will manipulate him in the end to rescue you from your your problem. God will not be manipulated. But I think if we could go and interview the prodigal son, The day after he's returned, there's a big party, his father accepts him, and we could ask him this question, Mr. Prodigal, now that you're back and you've been loved and embraced by your father, any thoughts you'd like to share with us? I think he would say this, I am overwhelmed by two emotions. Number one, my surprise at my father's great mercy, and number two, my regret that I didn't come back sooner. God does not want to be your last resort. Now, they made another error that I want you to see here. 
uh, embracing a superstitious faith. Now look with me back up in verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 3. says, when the troops returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? So why, why did God make this happen? Turned out it was them and their sin that led to the defeat. But look at what they say next in verse 3. Let's bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. So let's go get this piece of furniture. Then it will go with us. What will go with us? It will go with us. The ark will go with us. And save us from our enemies. What will save us from our enemies? The ark will save us from our enemies. You see, they are not trusting in the Lord here. They are trusting in something that represents the Lord. See, there is a clear distinction, and they knew this, between the ark and the Lord. Uh, The Bible says in uh, the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 22, that God will meet the people at the ark. So that means God is not the ark, and the ark is not God. It simply represented God in a sense. It was a meeting place for people to come and worship the Lord. But here these people, and this is a fine point, but it's so important. Here these Israelites were putting their trust not in God. They were putting their trust in some symbol for God. They were not putting their trust in their love for God, their submission to God. They were putting their trust in some external thing that somehow reminded them of God. Now, it is true that earlier in history, Moses had taken the ark into battle. And when Moses took the ark into battle, they were victorious. But there was a difference. Let me just read that to you. Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, short verse, listen. Whenever the ark set out, so they're going into battle. Moses is the leader, many years prior. Whenever the ark set out, Moses would say, arise, Lord. Let your enemies be scattered and those who hate you flee from your presence. Moses understood that it was the Lord that would give victory. But these people are relying not on the Lord, but they're relying on a symbol for the Lord. Now hang with me. I want you to see how we do this same thing and how it is such a devastating sin. We don't rely upon the ark today, but we rely on similar religious symbols. Now, many of these symbols, these externals in our religion, uh, are significant and were given to us by the Lord. But they're still not the Lord. Let me just give you a list, a small list, short list. Baptism. Is baptism a good thing? Absolutely. It's a symbol. It pictures something. It's important. It's commanded. But it is a symbol. Church membership. Is that important? Yes. We read the New Testament epistles that the early church kept lists of those that were, that were in the church, the local church. In fact, the Bible said, says that pastors will give an answer for the people in the church. There's got to be a list. There's got to be membership. That's important. Uh, baby dedication service. We've got some of those coming up soon. Uh, or in some other uh, religious expression, there might be christening or infant baptism. Uh, which are not strictly biblical things, but, uh, but, but, but there is that. Those, if we just group those together, th- th- those are valuable things. 
Uh, even church attendance, by the way, can be a symbol uh, if we're attending church so that it says something to ourselves or others about our spiritual status. Now, all of these symbols are good, and they serve good purposes in our lives until they don't. The problem comes when people rely on these symbols instead of relying upon the Lord. The problem comes when our faith and our spirituality become more about the symbols than the Lord, when it becomes more about the externals than the internals. You can see, see it here clearly in this story because uh, when they sent the ark in the battle, who did they send with the ark? Hophni and Phinehas, the most corrupt guys in town. They weren't trying to honor God. They were simply leaning on a symbol. What they had was a superstitious faith. You know what a superstition is? You know, when you have something you think bring you good luck. Or people look at baptism that way. Well, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I couldn't say I have an affection for the Lord, but I've been baptized. I'm a member of the church. I've been some. I come once a year at Easter. That's got to do me good somehow. That's a superstitious faith. That's putting our faith in some symbol instead of putting our faith in the Lord. Now, what if I told you as pastor, lead pastor of First Baptist Church, what if I told you that I carried a rabbit's foot in my pocket for good luck? What would you think? What if I told you that I have a lucky horseshoe hanging in my study to help me preach better on Sundays? What if I told you I read my horoscope every morning uh, in my devotion to plan out my day? What if I told you that when I have a big problem, I go to my backyard and search for four leaf clovers? I tell you what you'd say, you'd ask for a new pastor. Because all Christians, we know that Christians should rely upon the Lord, not upon trinkets or myths. But church, we do the same thing. When we let our baptism or our church membership or the fact that we were christened as a baby or, or even our attendance, we allow that to substitute for having a love for the Lord. Jesus said, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is an affection for the Lord. It is that internal, not just uh, the externals, these superstitions and charms. They're like rabbit's feet. They're just an external thing. You know, if you asked me to describe my marriage to my wife, if you said, maybe a better question is, uh, you're married, uh, you've been married for 26 years, I think, Tell us, describe your love for your wife. What if I describe my love for my wife this way? I said, well, here's my marriage certificate. I got it, laminated. Uh, you can see over here that we share a mortgage. Mortgage. Um, we file our taxes as married filing jointly. We hang our clothes in the same closet and our toothbrushes live in the same cup. Now, does that prove my, my love for my wife? No, those are all external things. I'm not saying that those things aren't important, uh, but they're just external things. They don't, you can have all of those things be true and not love your wife. No, if I want to talk about the love for my wife, I would say I love her with all my heart, that she's my best friend. I'd say I can't really 
enjoy anything unless she is a part of it. I, I would say when I travel, I long to be back home with her. I can't stand to be apart. And in 26 years, our hearts have grown together as one. Now, none of those things you can measure, but those internal things say more than a marriage certificate and, a, and, a, and mortgage paperwork. It says more than those things about how much I love my wife. So, do you love the Lord? Tell me about your love for the Lord without using externals. See, are you depending on the externals or the affection that you have for God? What is the antidote to this superstitious faith, this faith that's just based on externals? Well, we need to cultivate a love for the Lord, not just keep a list of externals. We need to spend time hearing from the Lord. That's, that's reading our Bibles. We need to spend time talking to the Lord. That's prayer. We need to spend time serving the Lord. We, we need to sacrifice valuable things for the Lord. Those are the things that, that meld our heart, weld our heart with the Lord's. So without pointing to anything external, things that others can see or measure, tell me about your affection for the Lord. The Israelites were trusting in a symbol instead of trusting in the Lord. Now the third sin, presuming upon the presence of God, uh, I will not presume that you'll sit here long enough for me to talk about that. So we're going to go on to uh, uh, close this out. Um, let me tell you the, what happens. Um, so we've already seen the Israelites. They go into battle again with the ark, 30,000 soldiers killed, Hophni and Phinehas dead, Eli's dead, uh, ark captured, Ichabod, Ichabod. But as Paul Harvey would say, let me tell you the rest of the story. Samuel, who we heard about a couple of weeks ago, is now back on the scene in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And just hang with me here. I think these are important things to see. You're going to see a stark difference here between the nation when Eli was the leader, poor leader, and now when Samuel is the leader in chapter 7. So here's the story in between. We finished four, we're at seven. What happened in five and six? Uh, God punishes the Philistines for capturing the ark. That did not work out well for them. So the Philistines return the ark seven months later. Uh, the ark ends up back in the possession of the Israelites in Beth Shemesh. Uh, that did not go very well either. Very interesting story. You should read it. So then the ark was sent to Kiriath Jerim where it was cared for by Eleazar for 20 years. So now we're fast forwarding, 20 years, seven months, maybe a, maybe a few weeks longer. Samuel is back on the scene. The Philistines, remember them? They're gearing up for another attack, so there's going to be more battle. Now let's see what Samuel does. So I'm going to read chapter 7, verse 3, but I'm going to skip around a little bit, but you can, I'll, I'll just be in chapter 7. You can follow. Verse 3 says, Samuel told them, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, get rid of the foreign gods and the asterisks that are among you. Set your hearts on the Lord and worship only him, and then he will rescue from the Philistines. Do you see a difference there? Eli said, let's just get the ark. It'll rescue us. Samuel said, no, we must humble ourselves before the Lord. 
We must humble ourselves before the Lord. That's what Samuel said. Verse 6, we'll skip to verse 6. When they gathered at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out on the, in the Lord's presence. They fasted. That's a kind of worship service that they would do. They fasted that day and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the Israelites at Mizpah. So they worship and they confess their sins. Verse 8, the Israelites said to Samuel, don't stop crying out to the Lord, our God, for us so that, so that he will save us from the Philistines. Who are they depending on? The Lord. Verse 9, then Samuel took a young lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. And Samuel was offering the burnt offering as the Philistines approached to fight against Israel. So here come the Philistines. What's going to happen this time? The Lord, verse 10, halfway through, the Lord thundered loudly against the Philistines that day and threw them into such confusion that they were defeated by Israel. Different approach, different outcome. What the Israelites realized in chapter 7 is they didn't need the ark of God. They needed the God of the ark. You see the difference? It's not some symbol. It's not some external that we point to that we get false comfort from. It's having an affection for God. It is loving God. God, it is trusting what Christ has done on the cross. It's walking with the Lord. And then I want to read one last verse, verse 12. Afterward, Samuel took a stone and set it upright between Mizpah and Shin, and he named it Ebenezer, explaining the Lord has helped us to this point. What he said, what Ebenezer means, the Lord helps What he says is, it's not by some symbol or some external, but it's because of what the Lord has done. What the Lord has done. So they humbled themselves and they said, we will trust the Lord. From Ichabod, God has departed to Ebenezer. Look what God has done. There's a song that I don't know if we have sung in our church in a long time. Maybe we have. My memory's not very good on these things, but. A song I remember from years ago, uh, an old hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Do you know that hymn? I promise I won't sing it to you, but I'll read some words. Because I think there's a part of that hymn that we sing, and most people have no idea what they're saying. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Does that sound familiar? Listen to the beginning of verse 2. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. See, today you can raise your Ebenezer. Today you can say, I'm not trusting in myself, making God the last resort, and I'm not trusting in some symbol, some external, I'm trusting in the Lord. And God will make it happen. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. See, I just think that there are some times when we have to recognize that Ichabod is the word. The glory of the Lord has departed. And then we have to look to Ebenezer. God will help. 
if we trust in the Lord first, if we trust in the Lord and not a symbol, the Lord will be your Ebenezer. I'm going to pray in just a moment. And when I finish praying in both services, there are going to be some ministers down front and you can come during the song that we're about to sing in both services and you can speak to one of those ministers. They'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, Those ministers will be here after the service concludes and they'll wait for you if you want to come later. But I want to encourage you if you want to want somebody to pray with you, you come as soon as we begin to sing. If you just like to come and pray at both services and don't want to speak to somebody, you just want to pray. And it would mean something to you to pray down front. We invite you. Both services do that with us. Father in heaven, thank you that you're our Ebenezer. Thank you that you will provide the help if we'll trust you first and trust you only. Father, for those that don't know Christ as their Savior, have never trusted in what he did on the cross, surrendered their lives, I pray today will be the day for that, that you'll draw them to come. Father, for those those of us who are children of God, I pray you show us where we're making you last, where we're leaning on things other than you. May you be honored in our hearts and minds. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.